0: Wave pool technology is progressing at a rapid rate as commercial surf parks open up all around the world. I'm your host Brian Dickerson, editor at Wave Pool Mag, and together we'll explore this amazing new landscape by talking to the dreamers, developers, engineers, and everyone making this space happen. These are the personalities who are defining the breadth and scope of artificial wave making today. Welcome to the Wave Pool Mag podcast. Welcome to the Wavepool Pool Mag podcast. My guest today is Dr. Jess Ponting, who has an amazing academic career within surfing and is working on several layers to bring more research and data into surfing and wave pools across all kinds of spaces there. So um, we, we're really stoked to have him on the show. And uh, Jess, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Brian. It's always a a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Yes, you too. So in doing your background, I was a little bit miffed because I thought, oh, I have to remember all the stuff that that Jess does. (laughs) So maybe you could give our listeners uh, more about your background and uh, just what it is you do.
1: So I'm wearing a number of hats, but I guess to try and summarize where I'm coming from, I come from a, a an academic background of being concerned about community development and that initially started in my post undergraduate days as an australian volunteer abroad which is kind of the australian version of peace corps in papua new guinea and thinking about well how can communities achieve economic and social development without destroying their natural resources and then straight off the back of that going surfing through indonesia for a year and coming across surf tourism not really doing very nice things environmentally socially culturally for the coastal communities that i was coming across it left me a little bit ashamed to be a surfer to see how we were impacting these communities and the environments that they live in and kind of gave me i kind of have an epiphany honestly walking along the beach in sumbawa in 1997 after having surfed a beautiful morning at the surf break nungas between Lakey Peak and Periscopes and coming back and thinking, you know, these places are beautiful. I'd love to be able to work in them and for them and for the local communities. Surf tourism isn't really working for these places, but from what I've seen as a community development worker, there is a a 50 year body of knowledge in how to work with local communities in less developed countries and engage them in that process and have the outcomes work for them. But none of that was being brought to bear on surf tourism. And it seemed to me that somebody needed to do that. And if someone was going to do it, it might as well be me. And so how do I go about becoming that person? And that was when I went back and started my graduate studies and started looking specifically at the sustainability of surf tourism. And so my master's and PhD are in those areas, looking specifically at the Mentawai Islands. And subsequently, I've looked at a whole bunch of different destinations. But we're on a surf park podcast So let me bring it around to there. I started putting on, I started the Center for Surf Research at San Diego State University, where I came after working for the University of the South Pacific in Fiji for a few years. And at some of my first meetings, a guy from Maryland who was working in advertising in the surf media at the time started showing up with his briefcase He was in his early 20s but looked about 15. His name was John Luff and he had built this website called Surf Park Central and wanted me to help him put on a conference for that industry and he had to tell me what that industry was. I was immediately on board and my angle with that was I don't want to be ashamed of another element of surfing in the way that I was about surf travel in Indonesia in the mid-1990s. So I'd love to be a part of talking to this industry but my angle is going to be about sustainability and it's going to be about how does this impact communities because to my mind it could have been a horribly polluting damaging industry where we dig giant holes in the ground and fill it full of water that we don't have and power it with coal-fired power stations and don't care about the communities that we live amongst or these can be showcases for the best practices in architectural design construction different technologies, ways of operating and ways of integrating with communities and different populations. So that was where my previous life, which is still ongoing of worrying about being concerned with consulting for advising governments and multilateral agencies on how surf tourism in the real world can be managed effectively to support local communities and environments. That's kind of how that shifted into the realm of surf park world. And so to kind of list off The uh, jobs that I do, there's kind of three of them. I'm an associate professor at the San Diego State University, where I direct the Center for Surf Research and teach about sustainable tourism. I'm a partner in Surf Park Central and the head of research and then director of a sustainability certification called STOKE, which has uh, a number of standards for the surf industry, the snow industry and the surf park industry.
0: So so going back to that, I mean, in your, your early days, you're in Indonesia and you start up your mission to to make surfing more responsible, and then here comes John, and he's got his uh, surf park central going. He's dedicated I, I think we can both agree in the like seven years ago, wave pools and surf parks were a little more uh, kind of the halcyon days like everything is possible. And then just in the past few years there's been more of a shift where publicly they're not as favored with elements like Coral Mountain. You know, being shot down. I think there's a popular television series where the the evil person uh, develops wave pools or something, <laughs> something like that. So, how I mean, is are, are you constantly on edge, going between these two worlds?
1: Not really. I'm pretty comfortable that if someone takes the time to understand equivalencies and issues in the surf park space that we can come out with an understanding of what a surf park is uh, in most environments as opposed to other uses of those same types of areas and resources and come out feeling pretty good about surf parks. You're at the last Surf Park Summit and I I kicked it off by talking about, and as, as you've identified, water in particular is the number one issue amongst potential surf park users and in Mainstream media, that's what people are focused on. Understandably, many of the areas that surf parks are being built are in drought. Water is a is a key and vital issue. And it seems counterintuitive that you would build a giant freaking pool in the middle of some of these areas for the frivolous sake of recreation. But in these areas where these surf pools are being shut down, uh, let's let's take the Coachella Valley, for example, where this is kind of the hot button issue. There's Over 90 golf courses. And one average size surf pool is going to use about the same amount of water in a year as one hole on one of those golf courses. And of course, each of those golf courses has 18 holes. In addition, the amount of water that they're using can be pretty easily offset. And, you know, Desert Surf famously has its Surfer Turf program. Uh, And I think it's quite innovative to think about water use in the way that we've been thinking about carbon use, for example, in that you can become water. Neutral or even water negative if you take certain steps uh, and in their case, removing turf areas, um, areas that required irrigation, replacing them with their escaping, and you know counting the savings in water. I think those are interesting strategies that can be can be used to address those issues but the, I guess I have a certain amount of nervousness of being a sustainability guy in the surf park space, but that anxiety really only comes from knowing that the answer is a little bit complex. I'm comfortable in it, but having mainstream media and the general public spend long enough to understand the issue in its full depth, that doesn't always happen.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. We've done in uh, some of the articles we've done and papers we've we've written, it's you know comparable to a Home Depot or a ice skating rink in a lot of instances. So it, it's just kind of how you use it. What, what are you going to you do with that space that benefits the community in a way that's uh, not damaging. And there was, I want to tie back to one more thing in the early days too. I I was speaking with someone and, you know, servers were kind of full of ourselves. You know, we're really like, think we're special, think we're different, but there is something that does happen when someone is involved with surfing and someone has been doing it for a number of years and has that ocean connection, has that kind of, Life force connection where you you do become a steward for um, the bigger picture for the environment do you see wave pools being able to instill that same connection with people
1: one hundred percent and the research that we've been doing bears that out that that is something that the market wants you know a lot of the people that respond to our surveys are already surfers but a lot of them aren't as well and they want access to knowledge about ocean and marine and coastal environments where surf breaks are that have environmental threats and they also want access to information and the the uh, potential to participate with activist organizations that are doing things about them now that's one part of it there's market demand I think from the other part of that from a surf parks perspective there's real potential to Take a surf park well beyond what the normal water park attraction is or really any other kind of attraction that I can think of. There are a couple of others that are you know, maybe have some elements of what surfing brings, but surfing is a indigenous sport that is thousands of years old that has myths and deities and stories dating back thousands of years that has, um, you know, a world championship tour watched by millions. And that kind of elevates it beyond going down a water slide, which don't get me wrong, is really fun. But with surfing, you can tap into something that is so much greater than that and is intrinsically, historically, culturally, mythologically linked to these enormous forces and human history in ways that can bring meaning to what you're doing in a surf pool that's so much beyond standing up on a piece of foam and riding a piece of energy that's moving through water. I mean, there are just spiritual overtones all over the place that are an enormous value add, I think, to users of surf parks wherever they are, and that is going, if you do the messaging right to have people feel a part of that, and I don't think it's hard, then The next step is to feel connected to that broader global population of your surfing brothers and sisters. And what are their concerns? Well, it all comes back to kind of the cultural motherland of waves in the ocean, where where it all began and and caring about those and and what the sacred surfing places
0: are around the world. So as you understand now, uh, wave pools and surf parks were kind of at a point where a few years ago, people were like, oh, yeah, they're going to be everywhere. And now some of the realities have come in, everything from, you know, neighbors who are opposed to environmental concerns and more importantly, people not fully understanding the environmental impact of a wave pool or surf park. A lot of the developments going on now um, tend to have the, the wave pool at the center of a condo or housing, something like that. Um, and there are more uh, if you've been to IAPA and other or events where it's it, it's kind of branching out, do you worry about surfing being becoming diluted? Which is kind of a from left field question, but just in that as it grows and expands and comes to this area, given all the the wonderful things it brings to a person and to and to the sport and to the community, do you have any concerns about the? I guess, dilution of it. I'm not
1: exactly sure what you mean by dilution. Are you, do you mean kind of a, a diminution of what surf culture is?
0: It, yes. So, so if you grow up surfing in the ocean and you, you go down and you respect the environment, because typically we talk about coastal environment when we say someone's a surfer, as surfing expands beyond the ocean and goes into uh, inland areas, is there going to emerge more of like a, a water park culture and less of a surfing one? Or do you see wave pools and surf parks still very much holding on to surf culture? And I apologize, I didn't explain the question. Oh, no, 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 no,
1: not a problem. I think that it's going to depend on, on how it's presented to people. And, you know, if built into the messaging, the story and the experience is this is an ancient indigenous sport. You know, it's kind of a holy spiritual activity that you're participating in, in, you know, an environment that concentrates the power of the sun to create these waves in a much shorter, smaller area than happens in the ocean. But you are linked by this activity to this larger cultural phenomenon and these marine and coastal areas, then I think there's going to be a natural link there. But There are bound to be surf parks that develop that don't embrace that messaging, and I think, sure, it's probably going to become, in some areas, riding a wave in a pool, and not too much more than that. People will still get the same benefits from the physical activity of surfing, from having really quick and easy access to flow states and to the periods of, of meditation that come after that. And there's just something really cathartic and important about being able to get out of your head for periods of time. And there are few things as effective as, as surfing at doing that. Uh, I think there's tons of anecdotal and actual scientific evidence to back that up. So I don't think that will change too much. In terms of the dilution of the culture... I mean, the culture is pretty diffuse and dilute at, at, at this point. And, you know, what is surf culture? Is there a a central hub of this? And and if there is, I think you could probably use some changing given its unfortunate history of, of white supremacy and, and sexism over the years. And it is evolving and growing and in ways that I think are pretty magical and wonderful in recent times in reaching new populations who can benefit from, you know, the uh for the one of a scientific term the magic of what surfing does for people and that surfing and you know the keepers of surfing culture as they might consider themselves the the surf media folks who've kind of shifted from print to podcast really these days are having a, a self-reckoning and it's to me really encouraging to hear what would have been the center of the surfing universe in the 1980s 1990s the same kinds of personalities who are engaged with the, the professional sport and the competition the kind of white male hegemony of what surfing should be which you know on a short board extremely radical that those barriers are breaking down and being more inclusive those people are just as excited about women surfing as they are about men surfing genuinely and legitimately these days that's being reflected by you know pay equity and the wsl so you know, culture is not a static thing anywhere. We tend to think that it is, but it's a constantly evolving thing that's negotiated and renegotiated on a daily basis. I think it will create new forms and styles of surfing and communities who feel, we. I mean, it's hard to imagine how they're going to feel about surfing if they become extremely proficient surfers in surf parks and haven't been to the ocean ever. That's going to be an interesting thing to see how that is. I'd like to think that some of that cultural messaging and the links back to the source of the ocean and coastal environments would be included, but of course, we can't guarantee that.
0: It's, yeah, you bring up uh, good points, and going into the culture, when you say, when I ask about culture, it's like, well, which surf culture are you? <laughs> am I talking about? You know, there is very much the uh, coastal California 80s, 90s patriarchy that you see in lineups all over. And one of the great things about wave pools and surf parks is that it doesn't need that. You don't have to grow up in a uh, coastal zip code and access you know, a local break to learn how to surf and experience the joys of it. And where some of the surf parks are opening in the center of the country, I think in Korea, they have a term, which is uh, tap water. <laughs> And uh, that, so it that's for surfers who've only learned how to surf at a uh, wave park, which I, f- I found really fascinating. The uh, the, the wave. That's interesting. There. There's
1: already slang developing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is the, like the first increments of new cultures, right? It comes across in language.
0: Yes, and so um, on. On this, now that it understood, you know, the, we've got some background on where we're going, how things are evolving. You've just come out with the 2023 Consumer Trends Report, which ties into this. And I didn't get to it till now because I wanted some background for our listeners to kind of understand where where surfing is now between wave pools and ocean surfing. And so with that background, with the uh, trends report, One of the things you found was that early surf park hesitancy among surfers has uh, has evaporated. So, in your query and asking surfers, which you did with uh, Surfline, you were able to um, ascertain some some really amazing amazing things. I'll hand it over to you. Share (laughs) share with us, Jess. What did you discover?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, about the report. So, I mean, as as well as insights from 2022. So the kind of basis for this is a a survey from 2022, but also I've been collecting data on the surf park industry going back to 2015. So two years after the first surf park summit, we started putting out surveys. You know, when we first did surf park summit, there wasn't really a new generation surf park industry. There was, um, There was the wave garden test facility and there was wadi adventure and that was it for kind of the latest generations of surf parks and that quickly changed 2015 really the quickening so we have data from 2015 through to 2022 on original research in addition to that we've got data sets from other sources that go all the way back to 2007 and then As you mentioned, we worked with Surfline on this survey as well in ways that they haven't worked with an external organisation like in the same way before where they've given us access to some of their survey data uh, with enormous sample sizes of up to 90,000 participants in these surveys. So this is some of the most, well, not some of the most, probably the most accurate information on surfing participation, who's surfing and how that exists. So that was incredibly exciting for a data nerd like myself. To, to okay, well, I, mean, I, have,
0: I have some of the data here, so I'm just going to list it, and you jump in on one and uh, mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of explore that, something that would be interesting for for our listeners. Uh, some of the stats I have is, on average, participants within a reasonable travel time and t- would anticipate using a surf park two to three times per month. Visitors are likely to arrive at a surf park with anywhere, oh wait, 2.9 companions. I don't know who makes up the 0.9, but there you go. <laughs> so on average, sample you show, sizes, my man. <laughs> <laughs> so you show up uh, with three of your friends and uh, two and a half of those friends will surf. Visitors to a surf park are more likely to rent a surfboard than they are a wetsuit. And willingness to pay for 10 perfect waves has increased 206%. To 307% since 2015.
1: Yeah, I think um, you know a, a lot of these make intuitive sense if you think about the journey of surf Park since 2015. So the first survey happened before Surf Snowdonia opened and before the KS Wave Co video, famously of December 2015, came out. And literally flipped the paradigm of what a surf park is versus waves in the ocean on its head overnight and overnight 400,000 people saw it and within a week it was 4.4 million just on YouTube not including social media channels and you know in the lead up to that you know there was that first contest held at Surf Snowdonia and they were interviewing people trying to get them to talk about how good the wave pool was and they were like oh it's like a it's like a good day at small green mount uh, on the gold coast and that was a pretty favorable comparison and then after ks wave, Co wave uh came down the pool it flipped and it's now people compare waves in the ocean to the ks wave Co facility so that's the backdrop of all of this shifting and when you talk about wave pool hesitancy having evaporated i think it started there and then we've had seven years since then of all this amazing footage of different technologies coming online. There really hasn't been a disappointing video coming out of a surf pool in seven years. For people who can surf or who want to, be, to surf, it all kind of looks like, wow, this looks like a good time. And as more people go to a surf park and experience it, then I think some of the other elements of hesitancy disappear as well. In 2015, words like lame We're featuring in our word clouds from qualitative responses and they disappeared immediately. And it's quite clear that the waves aren't lame. But there's almost no hesitancy left amongst the surfing population as to who wants to go surfing. You mentioned, you know, who's going to arrive at a surf park and who will surf. That seems pretty reasonable to me that you're going to have some people who are just coming to watch as opposed to the people who are going to actually get in the water. But I think those numbers are pretty useful for the surf parks Pretty good sample sizes, so pretty reliable data. The surfboard and wetsuit thing, I think, is kind of interesting and relates to, and it's particularly stark among advanced surfers. Almost, you know, none of them want to rent a wetsuit. They'll bring their own because they have one. But you see surf parks maintaining fleets of really interesting surfboards. So uh, Surf Ranch, for example, is filled to the eyeballs with really interesting firewire surfboards you know, if you want to experiment on something that's different to what you have, then it's a great opportunity to do that. And I think that's kind of what's coming out in the data. Is people are kind of looking forward to getting a little bit jazzy with their uh, surfboard choices beyond their usual quiver. There's some other kind of interesting stuff in here as well. I think some of the the quirkier results, and it comes from Surfline data with enormous sample sizes. Is that the and we looked at three key markets: so the US, Australia, and the UK the U.S., if you look at the data, is a nation of longboarders, and you got to break it down a little further, and people were asked what kind of surf craft they ride regularly and given three options. So to me, what it means is that in the U.S., there are a lot of people who exclusively longboard, as well as people who have a longboard in their quiver and ride it when it's smaller. Starkly different from the Australian market, where almost everyone shortboards. And people are shortboarding exclusively. It makes me wonder if there's a residual cultural cringe against uh, longboarding as there was when I was a youth growing up in Australia. And in the UK, very different again. A nation of fun boarders. And perhaps related to a more extreme seasonality of the UK surf season. You know, When the waves are mostly best, it's freezing cold is going to dissuade all but the hardest core of surfers. And then, you know, a lot of the rest of the time, it's it's more waves that are going to need a little more volume. So I thought that was pretty interesting and revealing of the character of the surfing populations of those three
0: markets. So, as um, surf park, someone has come out with this report. How do you see a park that's you know someone's got the dream they want to build a, a wave pool of surf park? How do you see them? using this information um i know within the process it's it's like you jump in you got your soil sample and you get your <laughs> funding and, and you're good to go and like, oh crap i didn't do any marketing the <laughs> uh, business plan how can someone use this to uh to better their project well
1: i think the most obvious adaptation here is well what can i expect from a market with given a certain population, how many people are likely to come? How many people they like to surf with? What are the rentals likely to be like? How much can I charge for this? And then, you know, I think an important piece as well is the sustainability piece. We kind of started off on that theme is extremely high demand for sustainable surf parks um, to the point where ninety-one percent of people who will use a surf park are willing to pay thirteen point seven five percent more. For a surf park that can demonstrate that it is operating sustainably, and that's, that's
0: amazing. Because um, I mean, think of another consumer sector where people are willing to pay that much more for yep. a a cream product. It's it's just not out there.
1: And it I compare this to surfing in the ocean, where I've also done this uh, same research, and it's six point seven percent. So it's double what people are willing to pay in the ocean. And again, uh, and that's been put through, so there's research shows that there's a gap between what people say they'll do and then what they'll actually do. And if you discount by 21%, that gets you to about the right level. Uh, I refer to it as a bullshit buffer. There is a more technical term than that. Uh, but both of those numbers have been through the bullshit buffer. So that that's kind of where people are. And if you think about, you know, a daily spend in a surf park averages range from 220 to 380. If you want to add 13% to those across all of the visitors across a year, and if the data is to be believed at face value, we have no reason not to, you could raise the prices by that much and not expect to see a drop in demand if you are communicating and you authentically are offering something that is demonstrably sustainable. Um, So I think that's pretty interesting information. I think the other part is understanding that there's been a real demographic shift and enormous growth in surfing in the last 3 years since uh, the start of the pandemic in those three markets the participation in surfing has grown by 35 to 44% since from 2019 to 2022 that's kind of staggering and you know it bears out in analysis of surfboard sales wetsuit sales across that same period It makes intuitive sense if you look at kind of what happened across most of the world where COVID happened, everybody shut everything down, including the beaches. And then we got a little bit more of a handle on what was safe and what wasn't, and beaches were reopened, but gyms were not. Many of the indoor types of recreation and activity that people would participate in was not available to them, and so people turned to surfing. Socially distanced. It's not a team sport. You're out in the sun, which we knew was um, good for killing off airborne COVID particles. Wonderful exercise. You're out out in the environment, and you're socially distanced. That's what people were looking for. And so, you know, the proportion of beginners in the surfing population is completely enormous, and there is increasing diversity in Australia since the beginning of COVID. The participation of women in surfing is up 78.6%. And on the back of that statistic, it is the most popular new sport for women in the country. And you know, those statistics are mirrored backwards and forwards, slightly different levels, but we're seeing a real shift. And there's some interesting links between these data points as well. When it comes to sustainability, you know the levels of concern average out 90 plus percent, but they're highest among women and the proportion of women surfers are overrepresented by beginners. So a lot of women are beginner surfers compared with men, with longboarders and beginners. So they care more about sustainability. They make up the bulk of new surfers. And from a surf parks perspective, if you think about the type of waves that are suited to beginners and longboarders, they're the kind of waves that require less energy to produce. And if you're talking about beginners who are taking lessons, that's kind of the cash cow. You're using far fewer resources to extract much more value. So I think there's some real strategic links between the changes in surfing demography over the last few years, what we understand about their wants and needs, and that these groups of people are more likely to be renting a wetsuit, surfboard, taking lessons, bringing family members, and using less resources to have their experience in the surf park. So they're they're a really good market, there's more of them, and uh, they're the ones who care most about sustainability.
0: No, I was uh, really kind of shocked when uh, last year, every year we publish our rates and times and hours for the world's wave pools. And we got the uh, schedule from Urban Surf and you know, CORE, Melbourne, Victoria, (laughs) a surfing environment. And their expert and advanced sessions were bookending the day. So you either had to get up really early or stay later in the day to surf the advanced wave, whereas the meat of the day in the sessions was the more intermediate and uh, beginner way so, so that was really eye-opening, despite the marketing we see with wave pools and surf parks being very like. You know, all the clips you see on Instagram are it low you know, doing a flip or, or something to that extent. But the reality of it is uh most people just just jumping in and having a good time.
1: Yeah, I think there's some interesting components to that. Uh the the bear out in the research as well. The advanced surfers are willing to travel further more often to surf and they're willing to spend more and when it comes to looking at the graphs on what they're prepared to spend on waves it is the advanced surfers who are prepared to spend the most and those who are using surf parks understand you know what it costs as well so you know from a marketing perspective advanced surfers are far more motivated to get to those waves so it makes sense to put them at the least pleasant ends of the day because <laughs> they'll put up with it they understand it <laughs> And for kind of the, the toe dippers in the sport, well, they're going to want, to want the sun to be up yeah. and maybe you've had a coffee and a leisurely breakfast and then let it settle for a little bit before they go out. So I, I do think that, that that makes some sense as well.
0: Okay. Having all this, this information and especially how eye-opening the environmental aspect of the report is, which uh, I'll tie it back, but first, how can people access th- this report? Where can they
1: where can they find it? Sure, You can go to surfparkcentral dot uh, com, and it'll be front and center there. And that's that's the way to get hold of it. And you know, if people are part of the Insiders program at Surf Park Central, which is the the membership component of that, for people who are really serious about surf parks and want the more B two B side of the information that that we specialize in, um, there's there's discounts for for those folks as well. And um Also to note is that Surf Park Summit is coming up here in September, and I think we've got about three weeks left of the discounted pricing on that.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah, that's that's worth keeping in mind too. Okay, Okay. well cool, that's that's great so our listeners know how to access that information for their projects. And I wanted to tie this back, my uh, original start on on this question is, Stoke Certified, you know, this information. You have this information now. And what it could you tell us what you're doing with Stoke?
1: Yeah, so sure. I mean, I'll I'll step back and explain a little bit about what that is. So Stoke sustainable tourism and outdoors kit for evaluation. I mean, we kind of forced the acronym a little. But the idea being that the research that I was looking at showed that there was a real demand for sustainability in, in surfing. But there wasn't any way for the, the surfing industry to show that it was being sustainable. People wanted to have a sustainable experience, but they didn't want to do any of the work themselves. So if there could be a, a rigorous certification that could prove that and have the literal receipts to show what was happening on the ground, then a person could book their trip with an organization that had the Stoke label and just be stoked and you know they can stay stoked they can go somewhere that is stoke certified and relax knowing that someone's been there on the ground and reviewed them so it's a it's a non-profit organization now operating as a program of the center for surf research at san diego state and it's really dedicated to providing this comprehensive it's systematic user-friendly sustainability standards and we we have surf tourism industry snow sports and then the surf park industry. And our standards resonate with guests in that it kind of speaks their language. It's not ISO 14001 that your average visitor to a surf park doesn't really know or understand, and that is only tangentially relevant to what a surf park does. So we design our standards specifically for resorts, ski areas, events, attractions in the surf and snow space, and it really addresses the specific needs of these vertical markets and we do that by there's a general standard called the global sustainable tourism council standard we take that as a starting point and then over the course of a couple of years working with leaders in these individual markets tweak this and manipulate it so that it has criteria that speak to the specific needs of those vertical markets so you know, in the in the surf space, we're asking about how surf guides are trained and whether you're using moorings or anchors on coral reef surf breaks. We're talking about snowmaking and idling in car parks in, in the snow sector. And in surf parks, we have had to invent whole new metrics to measure elements of sustainability. So we developed a, a surf seconds efficiency factor. We look at you know, relative water use to the amount of surfing time that it provides, A whole range of different factors that we developed with the surf generation technology companies, as well as surf parks themselves. So when you become a Stoke member, you get uh, access to our web app, which is uh, custom made and developed over three years by myself and Carl Kish. And so there's 98 criteria across eight impact areas. So we look at management, communication, safety and quality, design and construction, community development, fair labor, cultural heritage, supply chain, and environment and conservation. Across those eight areas, there are 96 criteria. The web app walks you through each of those and asks you questions that you click a box on to answer. And they're kind of in increasing increments of sustainability. And the higher up the list you go, the more points that you get. And for each of those 98 criteria, there are guides, resources, and examples to help guide surf park projects through the process we've got currently more than 50 members in 15 countries and the demand that we're seeing in the research is kind of playing out in the ground we've had a 10 percent increase in membership just in 2023 so far and all of that is without active marketing beyond kind of pr that comes out in endemic media
0: if i were to hit you with like if you could give me the top three things the surf park could do to help nail the stoke criteria um you know whether it's water reclamation or geothermal heating of water buildings or solar panels what do you want to share with us well yeah i mean i'll
1: I'll just pick a few there's 96 and (laughs) that's why i asked for three (laughs) in those 96 there's there's probably 300 compliance indicators or more all up but i mean I think the top ones for kind of public facing reasons, but also just for, you know, being a good corporate citizen in the world is, is you want to go for carbon neutrality. So you want to be using renewables. I think every surf park should be using renewables full stop. And, you know, whether that comes through a choice of electricity supplier through the grid in a perfect world, you're generating that renewable energy on site and it seems like that's starting to become possible with some of the technologies and the level of efficiency that they're reaching that you know potentially photo rooftop photovoltaics could potentially do that um you know geothermal helps with that any of the alternative renewable energies will help get to that point and then you mentioned water so you also i think in well in more important in particular geographies where water is a problem. You know, there's going to be some parts of the world uh, where water is not so much of a problem. We haven't come across one yet where surf parks have been built. So you also, I think, want to achieve water neutrality if possible through whichever means are available to you, or use alternative sources of water, whether like urban surf, that's reclaimed water from you know the apron. Concrete at Tullamarine Airport that's being treated, whether you're at Surf Snowdonia and you're using water that's coming out of the hydroelectric plant, or hopefully in the future, what we'll see is whether it's treated stormwater or even sewage water that's being treated. You know, I think there's a stigma there to be overcome, but people may remember Barack Obama drinking a cup full of sewage water yeah. during his presidency. <laughs> it is entirely possible to treat that to you know, a drinking water state. If we can recycle that kind of water, then we're really ahead of the game. So carbon neutrality, energy neutrality, and then the last piece of that that I would say is what we were talking about before, and it's a kind of an under-thought-about piece, is communication to your community of surfers at the surf park across a number of different things. The sustainability piece there, I think, is really important. So what are you doing at the surf park? that is sustainable, hopefully you doing those first two things we mentioned, communicate that to the guests. Have them know that that's something uh, that they're participating in. Communicate to them about surfing's history and culture. Really important, communicate to them about surfing etiquette. Because of the nature of surf park operations, it doesn't really come into play. So, I mean, you've got your turn, right? You're waiting in line and it's your wave. And if you're taking the wrong one for the most part, there's going to be a lifeguard or an operator there yelling at you that, hey, this isn't your wave that's not gonna translate well to the ocean. And what we don't wanna be doing is setting these people up for failure in ocean environments. So that should be part of the, the dry surf lesson before they get into the water. Even though it's not directly relevant to their experience in the surf park, I think that the understanding of the broader surfing culture is, is super important and that's part of sustainability as well.
0: So, Jess, we've, we've covered a lot and i've learned a lot and within this uh context through the stoke and through the report that people can pick up and and then also your history before we close it out i will ask you if you want to touch on anything else but also what what excites you right now what out in the wave pool and surf park world like what have you seen what have you read on our site that gets you excited
1: Okay, First, the first thing first, there is one other thing I wanted to mention um, about Stoke, which is that we also accept suppliers as members after careful vetting. So what we want to be able to provide to developing surf parks is sustainable options, sustainable solutions for a lot of these different criteria that we have. So we accept sustainable suppliers and we have, for example, we don't certify them, but we have them as members that that we calculate their contribution to their Stokes score, and we recommend them to the surf parks that are looking to get Stokes certified. So we have water treatment companies, filtration companies, geothermal companies, architecture firms specializing in sustainable design, carbon offsetting companies and NGOs, and there seems to be uh, a real enthusiasm for that. Uh, on both sides of the equation, the suppliers want to be scrutinized and vetted and then put forward as legitimate, real, authentic, sustainable suppliers, and the developers are looking <laughs> for the same thing. And that if someone's in the middle saying, hey, these people are legit, you want to be legit, let's get together and make a surf park, um, that's a role that we're really happy to play. In terms of what's exciting me at the moment in surf parks, I mean, I, I am... Very, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, my I'm, I'm skewed to community development and sustainability. So I'm excited to see for the industry. I'm excited to see more data coming out about the social and economic benefits of surf parks for the communities in which they're built. And then I've been super excited about the data that we've been collecting and. M- Starting to move surf parks towards a place where they are considered uh, in you know the dry world of investment, real estate, and banking as an, just another asset class, so that it becomes easier for developing surf parks to have the data and say, look, here's you could build a golf course, or you know what, whatever it is that would normally go amongst a real estate development or as a, a recreation development. People know what they're getting with various other asset classes. Think we're coming to the cusp of that. The other part that I'm excited about is stems from the last Surf Park Summit where sustainability was front and centre, much to my surprise, across pretty much every panel that I saw. and I'm really looking forward to seeing the integration of this new and growing awareness about sustainability and then also the pressure that's coming to bear from communities and from local governments demanding Sustainable responses, you know, it's possible, and they're there, and we can we can help to make that happen. I'm, I'm excited to see how that plays out. We find, you know, increasingly sustainable solutions and new technologies that are going to help achieve that dream. As the surf park is a showcase of sustainable operations and technologies, I, th- I think we're headed there.
0: You you bring up a, a really good point that uh, wave pools do have more of a duty to to be sustainable than say your local hockey rink or home depot and the the clientele at surf parks is demanding it as we saw in the in the report yeah i think right.
1: there's a a novelty factor there that is part of the the blockage to people really understanding the the nuance of a surf park like you said a home depot or, or an ice rink a pass of a zamboni is probably you know two weeks worth of evaporation <laughs> on a surf park but people aren't used to thinking about a surf park as a legitimate recreation facility in a community. And there's um, you know, a certain, particularly in the United States, I don't think it's the same in Australia where you know surfers are on the back of our cereal packets, but in the United States, there's a certain cultural cringe about the frivolity of surfing and how could we possibly allocate these resources to, some, to something as frivolous as surfing? Yeah. And the answer is because it's, it's really good for people <laughs> and, and it can be a real economic driver for communities, and it doesn't have to be a drain on environmental
0: resources. And it, it does. It's, it's good for people, keeps people healthy. It does build communities and uh, puts everyone in touch with something that is, that is wonderful and, as I said, ancient, ancient culture. Jess, we're going to wrap it up, and I want to thank you very much for taking time out and joining us and, and sharing all your wonderful insights with us. I really appreciate
1: it. Absolute pleasure, Brian. Thanks very much.